I have called up in all my years of sorcery, Hello and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering The Beast of Averon. Yes, so Smith originally uh, completed the story on June 18th, 1932, uh, and he submitted the story to Weird Tales, barely convinced that Farnsworth Wright would accept it, but he rejected it apparently with no specific criticism, merely saying that he didn't like it as well as Smith's other medieval stories. So he went and sort of solicited notes from uh, the Lovecraft Circle, uh, notably from Derelith, uh, who gave him a bunch of notes on changing it, he eventually did so. Ruth, do you want to tell us about that? Well, originally he'd written the story um, in three three frame stories with three different narrators. And that was the biggest change is that he took it all under the final narrator and condensed it a bit. It had an awesome found quality to it before, but it wasn't as tight a story. So when he got it revised, it, it was much shorter. I think it was shorter. Definitely... Yeah, sure. It flowed a lot faster, and he changed one key component of the ending, which I think made a really good difference. Of course, I also say that because we've already recorded Colossus, and um, we'll talk a bit after what that change at the end was and why we like it. Uh, yes. So the the story ended up um, first appearing in the May 1933 issue of Weird Tales. Um, so once again, this was before Colossus of Lauren, so apologies for the mistake. Uh, the story appeared alongside Tales by Jack Williamson, Donald Wandry, August Derleth, Robert Howard, and others, including a guy named Nard Jones. That's Nard <laughs> Jones. Uh, and that's kind of my new favorite name. <laughs> I, just, I just can't get over it because it's, it just makes me laugh. Nard Jones. Uh, I looked him up because I was like, who, who pray tell, their internet, is this Nard Jones and what did he write? Um, it turns out he was an, uh, an Oregon-based writer, and he doesn't seem to have written that much weird fiction. Um, but yeah, he was in Weird Tales uh, alongside some of the big names. So, Nar Jones, here's to you. <laughs> Nar Jones, respect. <laughs> Mad respect, Nar Jones. Old age, like a moth in some fading arras, will gnaw my memories over soon, as it gnaws the memories of all men. Therefore, I, Luc de Chaudronnet, sometimes known as astrologer and sorcerer, write this account of the true origin and slaying of the beast of Averon. And when I have ended, the writing shall be sealed in a brazen box, and the box be set in a secret chamber of my house at Zim, so that no man shall learn the verity of the matter till many years and decades have gone by. Indeed, it were not well for such evil prodigies to be divulged while any who took part in them are still on the earthward side of purgatory. And at present, the truth is known only to me, 
and to certain others who are sworn to maintain secrecy. So that's an ominous beginning to the story. I love that beginning to the yeah. story. So that's uh, our narrator, Luc de Chardonnier. Chardonnier, yeah. yeah. So what does that mean? Because chaud means hot, right? Mm-hmm. So, and what does Ronier mean? Do we know? Does it mean anything? Is he Luc the hot-bodied? <laughs> Hang on. Um, Chaudronnier est un métier des aignantes à l'original de des chaudrons. Est-ce que c'est un chaudron? Oh, a cauldron. Um, oh. A chaudron is a cauldron, and a chaudronnier is a, um, I would say it, it's more like the, c- the cauldron user, the cauldron maker. So, yeah. Chaudronnier is uh, the French for um, a maker of cauldrons or of pots. And so I think it's a nice little ominous touch that yeah. Smith puts in there. And he self-identifies as a sorcerer, so mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. One of the few sorcerers whom the church has left alone, actually a little bit like Gaspard du Nord after Colossus. Right. So what's what's this guy doing? Why is he writing this? He talks about a beast and something that happened. So he's, I assume he's going to tell us this story, right? So wh- what's he talking about? He is talking about, we don't have a date uh, as to when he is talking from. Um, right. like we can assume that it's a number of years later, but he is talking specifically about the early summer of 1369. So this is possibly, what when was um, our last story? The Mandrakes was the 14th or 15th century? 15th. Early 15th. Or okay, sometime so, in the 15th. So yes, yeah, so this is before the Mandrakes, uh, but after Colossus of Lorne. And uh, during the summer, a very impressive comet suddenly appears in the sky. And he says, the comet streamed nightly above Averone, bringing the fear, of, the fear of bale and pestilence in its train. And so pretty soon, as is their want in Averone, the locals start to um, whisper about a strange evil and a foulness uh, that this comet might be bringing. Oh, he says that it rose behind the dragon this comment, I, I try to figure out what that means, and I can find some references to the dragon in astrology, but I couldn't really make heads or tails of exactly what what it means. I think it's, I, I yeah. Assume it's yeah. Go ahead. We're probably going to say the same thing. The the placement in relation to the constellation, right? The, the Draco constellation, the dragon uh-huh. constellation. Uh, okay. Well, that is sensible. Yeah. Which um, is a, a circumpolar constellation. Thank you, Jim. It was one of the 48 constellations listed by the second century astronomer Ptolemy and remains oh. one of the 88 modern constellations today. Yeah, I just saw it the other day out in Utah. <laughs> Whatever. It's just a dragon. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it's, yeah, he's just talking because he's a, because Luc de Chardonnay is a astrologer, so he would know the constellations. Now, the first hint that something really is wrong is when a brother Jérôme from the Abbey of Paragon, which is the same abbey as in the end of the story, and it was also pelted with bodies and whatnot in Colossus, is coming home through the woods and sees something that terrifies him. And it's not just an ordinary loop guru or something like that. (laughs) So, Tim, what does Jérôme see? The horror stood erect, rising to more than the height of a tall man, and it swayed like a great serpent, and its members undulated, bending like a heated wax. 
The flat black head was thrust forward on a snakish neck. The eyes, small and lidless, glowing like coals from a wizard's brazier, were set low and near together in a noseless face above the serrate gleaming of such... So he sees this this beast. Do any of you know the year that Color Out of Space was written? Um, no, but that's only, a good only point. Because, yeah. yeah, only because this, like, throughout the course of this story, this creature gets described in an array of ways. Nineteen twenty-seven. Uh, oh, so this is much much after after later, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but Smith makes a point of of uh, mentioning the colors of it. Yeah, this uh, thing is constantly changing colors. It almost seems like it can fly, almost, but it's got these like legs and. Yeah, it has a certain shape shifting quality to it, and like it even says, you know, in this first description a little later on of its actual shape and the number of its limbs, he could form no just notion. And it runs and slithers, uh, and later on it gets described as an array of different animals. Which is kind of cool. I mean, well, we can talk about that, I guess, when they talk about it later. But Yeah, I kind of wish he didn't describe it in such solid terms right there. Because, you know, now I'm picturing a snake. If he never gave us those... Right, but it's a snake that runs. I feel like I feel like any concrete description he gives, he quickly um, gives you something against, you know? And a snake with teeth like a bat, not like a snake. Mm-hmm. It's different. So it, yeah, is a little, it is a little bit of a kitchen sink approach to a monster. I'm okay with that. But it's a little bit like, and it's a bat, and it's a spider, and it's a snake, and it's a rainbow. Oh, I have some ideas about this for later, about why it might be taking on all of these shapes, but I'll save it for a little bit later. So the next morning, Jérôme goes back to the monastery and nobody believes him. They all think, oh yeah, you stayed late, you got drunk, you walked through the forest, you saw a a deer, you saw a, a beaver, and you totally freaked out. But then they find the stag, its body is torn open and the marrow has been sucked out of its spine. Yeah. And everything else is there, the flesh is there. It's not been eaten. Its organs are fine. It's just the marrow from the spine is gone. And then the monks say, oh, you, you actually saw that, didn't you? Clearly the Crap. devil is foot. Yes. Yeah. Jim, how did that make you feel when you read that description of that poor deer? Uh, it actually, it made me feel, because the, it wasn't just that one deer, because uh, other animals start to be found consumed in the same manner. It made me feel guilty for eating the marrow out of chicken bones as a kid. It actually made me think of uh, the semi-modern phenomenon of cattle mutilations where, you know, cows would be found with um, strange circular holes cut in their faces or in their genitalia or, you know, it's just a really weird way for something to die. And a very mm-hmm. alien way for something to die. But it's just cows and stags and that sort of thing at this point. It's wolves even. Then it gets an idea, the creature, and it goes for corpses. There's a history in Averone of yes. going for corpses. So. I just feel like, and the cemetery was bothered again. Uh, so yeah, it goes after bodies lying in the cemetery of St. Zenobi, mm-hmm. um, which uh, we might remember from... Uh, <laughs> oh, they were the from, ones who got the dung thrown on? Yeah, they got buried in dung uh, in, the, in the closets of Yalorn. So it gets into the cemetery, and the next morning, people find two freshly buried corpses that have been dug up. You know, they were freshly buried, now they're dug up. Uh, but these are different. It looks like the creature has, you know, done its thing where it tears the body open and then tried to eat the marrow, but couldn't. Uh, and then, in frustration, the cadavers had been torn asunder, and tatters of their flesh were mixed with the rags of, the cer- of their cerements. Uh, so it looks like he tried this beast, whatever it may be, to, to go after non-living flesh. Um, but found it not suitable and then got super angry and just sort of tore the bodies to pieces. 
um, which is gross. And unfortunately, it doesn't say, oh, maybe humans aren't edible, because then it says, okay, and it starts going after uh, charcoal burners yep. and other living people. I, want, I just want to point out how this, like, I don't even know if he would do it, I guess this is before Colossus of Elon, like, this story, out of all the ones we read, really name drops the um, the geography of Averone. Yeah. Uh, I think almost mm-hmm. every notable location that it will be featured in any story Except guess, for Vion. Oh, is Vion not mentioned? Not that I recall. Yeah, like, like Vion and Elorn aren't mentioned, but but Zenobi and Zymes and I think the river gets mentioned and Paragon mm-hmm. is mentioned, and it's a whole and like it's a, it's a name drop fest. Oh, and Falfam, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, so why do all these things get mentioned? Because Theophile, the Abbey, the Abbot of Paragon, brother Theophile organizes a manhunt. For this thing, and they go everywhere, including the Chateau Fosflam. They've noticed a lot of the problems seem to happen in the close vicinity of the Abbey, the ranges farther afoot. So they start thinking maybe it's holed up around here and just goes out at night. Now, Theophile, as we talked about in the Colossus episode, now this would of course be his first Theophile because we didn't Colossus wasn't actually written until later, right. as we talked about earlier. But it means lover of God or God lover, and so. Having an abbot named that, I think, is is an important part of the story, that the abbot is presented as a very godly man. He's troubled by these happenings, but he is faithful. He's not he's not even like our later Claire, who's, you know, all about the books and the wine and whatnot. This is the kind of guy who probably wears a hair shirt. In fact, he does wear a hair shirt later in the story. It's a very pious guy. So, you know, they've searched uh, all over the place and they can't find a thing. Meanwhile, overhead, every night, this comet, this rutilant, rutilant comet gets brighter and brighter. And over the course of the summer, this thing continues to kill men, women, and children. Um, they give a specific number. I think it's 40. It's around 40, possibly mm-hmm. total. Men, women, children to the number of more than 40 were done to death by the beast. And this thing stays, uh, as we said, mostly around the Abbey, but it will go as far afield as Zyme. The river is, is swall. Uh, and later, oh yeah, the gates of Lafrenai get mentioned as well, mm-hmm. which is another uh, of, our, of our locations. The epicenter of its activity does seem to be the Abbey of Paragon. There were those who beheld it by night, a black and slithering foulness clad in changeable luminescence. But no man saw it by day, and always the thing was silent, uttering no sound, and was swifter in its motion than the weaving viper. Once it was seen by moonlight in the Abbey Garden, as it glided toward the forest between rows of peas and turnips. Then, coming in darkness, it struck within the walls. Without waking the others, on whom it must have cast a lethian spell, it took Brother Jérôme slumbering on his pallet at the end of the row in the dormitory. And the fell deed was not discovered till daybreak, when the monk who slept nearest to Jérôme awakened and saw his body which lay face downward with the back of the robe and the flesh beneath in bloody tatters. A week later, it came and dealt likewise with Brother Augustin. And in spite of exorcisms and the sprinkling of holy water at all doors and windows, it was seen afterward gliding along the monastery halls, and it left an unspeakably blasphemous sign of its presence in the chapel. Many believed that it menaced the abbot himself, for Brother Constantine the Cellarer, Returning late from a visit to Vion, saw it by starlight as it climbed the outer wall toward that window of Theophile's cell, which faced toward the great forest. And seeing Constantine, 
the thing dropped to the ground like a huge ape and vanished among the trees. So there is a mention of Vion, although the thing hasn't gone that far. Yeah, yeah. But this thing is frightening. It's completely soundless. It'll kill your buddies in the bed next to you. Yeah, that's really, that moment freaks me out. Yeah. Like, it's really, that's really upsetting. I think this um, is one of my favorite parts of it, just because of the thought of it creeping along the monastery, and nobody yeah. sees it until they come around the corner, yeah. and boom. That's horrifying. And again, you've got the church versus the monster. Right. They try holy water, they try exorcisms, Theophile tries prayer, and, and still nothing. There's a great uh, little thing I love. I mean, I, I feel bad that Brother Jerome is killed, but I like that Smith takes the time to say after the stag is found, so back at the beginning of the story, there's a line that says, and Jerome marveled at the mercy of God, which had permitted him to escape right. the demon of the stag. <laughs> Is like for then him then to like have his skull ripped open and like while he's just peacefully sleeping in his bed seems particularly cruel. And there's a note about the frame story: the first part up to this point, and then this part is a little note on the end of it. Um, it's actually Jerome is writing out the story, starting with what he saw, and then just about the general history of, and this is what else has been going on. And then there's a little note: and Brother Jerome was killed in his sleep this way. Crap. So that's the first part of the frame story. I want to talk briefly about whether or not the Star Beast took a crap in the church. Because I find this phrasing incredibly conspicuous. <laughs> that it left an unspeakably blasphemous sign of its presence in the chapel. What, what else would it have left there that would be unspeakably blasphemous? Now, Theophile seems to take this whole thing really personally. Um, that it's invading his abbey and the killing monks that are under his care. And so he stays up in his room, beating himself and keeping vigils. And everybody starts to get worried about him because they're like, he's up all night, he's praying, he's wearing hair shirts. And they've seen the, the beast climbing the wall, as we noted earlier, outside of his thing. So they don't feel like he's safe. And they're worried that he's killing his health. So summer goes on, and uh, toward the middle of August, this comet that everyone's been talking about, or they were talking about before people started being killed at least, um, begins to wane in the sky. So it's starting to go away. But about at that time, the beast invades the convent enzyme uh, and kills a sister Teresa. Um, and witnesses see the beast scurrying away from the scene. Uh, it's described there like some enormous beetle or spider. And rumors have it that in uh, Teresa's hands, uh, they find a letter from Theophile uh, in which he had spoken at some length of the dire happening at the monastery and had confessed his grief and despair at being unable to cope with the satanic horror. And that's the second part of the frame story, is Theophile's missive to Teresa, who is in one version his niece, and in another he calls her his sister, and he kind of indicates that they might be siblings. I'm not sure. Right, but there is a close relationship there. Something familial beyond yeah. just she's a nun and he's a, an abbot. Yeah, and this, I mean, when we talk about the different versions of the story, this this issue of the letter in Teresa's hand is kind of, I think, one of the big important differences, but I guess we'll talk about that, that at the end. So then our hero, Luke, is super upset about all of the stuff that's going on. He's not like the other sorcerers we've seen so far where they kind of are on, in their own little world. He's actually worried about what's going on here in Averone. I want to talk actually yeah. briefly, really quick about how he's so worried that he like consults his spirit. So he consults his spirits going on and they're at a loss. 
They're like, we, this is beyond us. Yeah. We simply don't know what's going on. He conjures up familiars and, and tries to get answers of what, what in the world is this thing? And they basically say, it's not of this world. We can't give you any any answers here because we this is nothing we've ever there's nothing that happens in the i knew that it was no creature of earth or of the terrene hells but regarding its actual character in genesis i could learn no more at first than any other so it's not a demon of the earth so he's doing his researches now he hasn't actually gone out and tried to do anything with it he's just sitting there and researching stuff on his own waiting then I bethought me of that strange oracular ring which I had inherited from my fathers, who were also wizards. The ring had come down from ancient Hyperborea, and had once been the property of the sorcerer Iban. It was made of a redder gold than any that the earth had yielded in ladder cycles, and was set with a large purple gem, somber and smoldering, whose like is no longer to be found. In the gem an antique demon was held captive a spirit from pre-human worlds, which would answer the interrogation of sorcerers. So, from a rarely opened casket, I brought out the ring and made such preparations as were needful for questioning. And when the purple stone was held inverted above a small brazier filled with hotly burning amber, the demon made answer, speaking in a shrill voice that was like the singing of fire. It told me the origin of the beast, which had come from the Red Comet and belonged to a race of stellar devils that had not visited the Earth since the foundering of Atlantis. And it told me the attributes of the beast, which in its own proper form was invisible and intangible to men, and could manifest itself only in a fashion supremely abominable. Moreover, it informed me of the one method by which the beast could be vanquished if overtaken in a tangible shape. Even to me, the student of darkness, these revelations were a source of horror and surprise, and for many reasons I deemed the mode of exorcism a doubtful and perilous thing. But the demon had sworn that there was no other way. So he just had parlay with a demon, and the demon... A demon stuck in a ring, yes. and it's awesome. <laughs> and like the one demon on Earth who actually knows what's going on, yep. which... I, I love that bit about that you read about earlier where he talks to all the other demons. Mm-hmm. No clue. They kind of have a clue that's from beyond. And right. this one's like, oh, yeah, I'm really ancient. I, I don't even think this demon is this demon's not even from Earth, right? No, he's not. I don't yeah. think so. No. Now it says, what, is it, what does he say? He's st- uh, an antique demon, a spirit from pre-human worlds, mm-hmm. which is, again, like that's just that pre-human worlds is just a huge can of worms. Like what, what is a pre-human world exactly? Like what is, what is that supposed to mean? I, I certainly don't know, but it's amazingly evocative. So now Luke knows. He knows what to do. And then Theophile and his group of monks come to Luke and ask him. And it's not just the monks, right? It's the it's secular authorities as well. I think it's right. a combo group. They, they come to him and they're like, hey, sorcerer we need your sorcery to take care of this because we can't uh, we can't handle it and luke says he'll do it like he's obviously aware of the situation and he knows how to solve it although he doesn't um he doesn't like what he's been told by the ring necessarily but he knows how to do it then theophile speaking in a low broken voice assured me that all doors including those of the abbey of paragon would be opened at my request and that everything possible would be done to further the laying of the fiend which I think is a really notable passage, uh, more notable probably in the original version of the text than in this, but I think still fairly notable. Yeah. So Luke is like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And he, like in, 
Luke falls very much in the canon of Clark Ashton Smithian heroes who aren't Robert E. Howard heroes at all. Mm-hmm. Like, like, so there's this description of him getting ready, and he says, I made no preparations for the journey except to place upon my index finger the ring of Ibon and to arm myself with a small hammer, which I placed at my girdle in lieu of a sword. That's awesome. He's a craftsman. Oh, but wait, something before this is that the, the monks and the guards offered him a reward, and he said, I don't need a reward. This is a dangerous thing. I'm going to do it because it's something that I, I can do. Yeah. So he's kind of like hero hero. I mean, yeah. maybe slightly even more than Gaspar. I don't know. What do you guys think? Who's the, I, who's the bigger They're hero? on par with each other. I think, well, I think, yeah, I think they are on par with each other. But it seems like Luke the Copperpot is a much, he seems much more accomplished as a sorcerer. Yeah, sure. Yes. And Gaspar he, never finishes his training. So right. he's doing his own study now. And Luke is, I mean, he does have the advantage that he comes from a long line of wizards. Right. Like, mm-hmm. it, I think the implication is that his family have been wizards since Hyperborea, so that's right. thousands yeah. and thousands of years. And um, Gaspard is the first in his family to do that. Yes, for sure. Let's see what happens. What does he do? He takes two armed men, quiet ones, the kind that don't, you know, gossip. Yeah. And they go to the abbey. Now, they're invited inside, and they're told they can have full range of the abbey, but they say, no, no, we're going to hang outside near the forest. And they just stay there. They get a tour that shows them where Theophile's room is, and they essentially wait below it, but in the shadow of trees, so that they can't necessarily be seen. And they wait. They wait in the forest, and nothing happens, and they wait, and they wait, and then it's almost dawn, One of the men-at-arms was borne to the ground, and I saw above him, in a floating redness as of ghostly blood, the black and semi-serpentine form of the beast. A flat and snakish head, without ears or nose, was tearing at the man's armor with sharp, serrate teeth. Swiftly, I laid the ring of Ibon on a stone I had placed in readiness, and broke the dark jewel with a blow of the hammer that I carried. From the pieces of the lightly shattered gem, the disimprisoned demon rose in the form of a smoky fire, small as a candle flame at first, and greatening like the conflagration of piled faggots, and, hissing softly with a voice of fire, and brightening to a wrathful, terrible gold, the demon leapt forward to do battle with the beast, even as it had promised me, in return for its freedom after cycles of captivity. It closed upon the beast with a vengeful flaring, tall as the flame of an auto de fe, and the beast relinquished the man-at-arms on the ground beneath it, and writhed back like a burnt serpent. The body and members of the beast were loathfully convulsed, and they seemed to melt in the manner of wax and to change dimly and horribly beneath the flame, undergoing an incredible metamorphosis. Moment by moment, like a werewolf that returns from its beasthood, the thing took on the wavering similitude of man. The unclean blackness flowed and swirled, assuming the weft of cloth amid its changes, and becoming the folds of a dark robe and cowl, such as are worn by the Benedictines. Then, from the cowl, a face began to peer, and the face, though shadowy and distorted, was that of the abbot Theophile. Dun, dun, dun! Shock! Horror! (laughs) What do you think about that? I think that it's pretty crazy. When I first read the story, I was like, ah, who cares? But then, like, reading it through again, there's a lot of hints that mm-hmm. that it might be him. There's even more in the version where we have Abbot Theophile's confession. Yes. We can talk a bit more about that later, but <laughs> is it's it really a hint if it's a confession? <laughs> well, it's not a confession. It's a it's a letter, it's a worried letter. 
Signed, the Starby. <laughs> I keep passing out. Like I, I feel he feels like he's under attack by God. So it's like a confession that he must have done something wrong because he's trying to pray this thing out and he's trying to use all of his powers. He's a freaking abbot. And yet he like, passes out and falls asleep and he wakes up in the morning. He's like, I was wearing a hair shirt and I had thistles on the floor. Right. Wonder what could have been happening. It's pretty cool. But in this version, there's fewer hints. The fight continues. Theophile can be heard screaming for a moment in the midst of this amazing tussle. Actually, hold on. Talk about how, because the first time I read the story, let's take a little biographical journey. This was the second story of Averon I ever read because I read them in order in the Return of the Sorcerer book. So I first read um, Holiness of Azdarak and I was like, oh, that's okay. And then I read this story and this was the first Averon story that I loved. And I loved it specifically because of this amazing moment where a wizard breaks a magic ring and an ancient like demon of fire fights a beast from the stars. I, it's amazing. Like it's, it's not epically amazing like Colossus of Gilorn is, but it's an amazingly weird thing to have happen. Like it yeah. feels like something out of, like it's funny, it feels to me like something out of very, very modern day pop culture. Like it feels like something you would see in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode. Mm. I think it's actually kind of played better in this than it would be in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode. No offense, Buffy, but But it also I don't know, sounds I think- like it could be something almost folkloric as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a fire demon and a beast from the stars did battle here right. in Averon. Right, and it's like yeah, and it's it's an amazing. And I don't I don't know that this is on purpose because he doesn't he doesn't couch it in these terms, but it feels to me like a direct collision of fantasy and science fiction. Like because yeah. this thing, mm-hmm. I mean, it's right. it's an alien mm-hmm. fundamentally, the star beast, and the demon is fundamentally a creature of fantasy. Like, and then they fight and it's awesome. (laughs) So in the middle of this fight, Theophile can be heard screaming for a moment, but this is a weird way to get into this quote. I'm just going to edit it slightly. But then the smoke thickened, hiding both the assailant and that, that which it assailed. And there was no sound other than the singing of fed fire, which I just think is a great, a great way to let us know that that fire demon just ate a star beast. uh, And now it's, like singing because not only has it fed, but it's also free. A lot of his stories have these sort of unexplored venues. And I think one of the great unexplored venues of the story is just what is the price that was paid to defeat the star beast. Right. Cause Luke, Luke says, I don't like that. I have to let this thing go. Um, he doesn't really say why. I mean, it might just be because you feel. Is he losing ruin. power or. Yeah, exactly. Or, or is it because he's releasing this thing that, that might be just as bad or possibly worse, who knows, than the Star Beast. I mean, it, it's not really, the stakes aren't really established, but I just love this sort of strange, almost Faustian deal he has to make to defeat this this thing. And then so, it just sort of dissolves up into the sky. So I kind of, I feel like it left. I think it left. That's my you think it went back it. to pre-human world? I think it went back to somewhere in space. Or maybe it went to go enslave the planet that Luke's forefathers saved. Yeah, I, li- I, like, to, I sure. like to take a more a more pessimistic angle. I think it <laughs> went someplace to do something bad. Right. Maybe not here on Earth, but it definitely went someplace uh, to go about its infernal right. business. But we don't know. We have no Maybe idea. Maybe it killed the Starbeast's family. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, the Starbeast is melted and the fire demon, uh, like a will-o'-wisp, disappears. And Theophile is thoroughly dead. The fight killed him. Yes. Tim, what happens? Luke makes the men-at-arms swear not to tell anything about what happened. And then he wakes the porter and tells him a lie, basically. He tells him that Theophile uh, died a hero, that the beast Mm -hmm. attacked 
as Luke performed the exorcism and Theophile was killed in the struggle. And I think, I really do think that he made the right choice there, especially based on having read Theophile's letter in the other version. I don't think Theophile was in any way complicit to this, and neither does Luke. So he decides to take the honorable way out and says, let the abbot's memory be honored. And, And besides, the abbot stepped outside of his comfort zone, as it were, and risked the wrath of of his um, superiors within the church to say, you know what, I'm bringing a sorcerer and I'm going to give him full reign of my abbey because this absolutely has to stop and I can't do it. And so I think he, he did the right thing and I think he should be rewarded for that. It's interesting. Let's, let's read the end and then we'll talk about the, the interesting situation that Theophile was in. This tale was accepted without question by the brothers, who grieved mightily for their abbot. Indeed, the tale was true enough, for Theophile had been innocent and was wholly ignorant of the foul change that came upon him nightly in his cell, and the deeds that were done by the beast through his loathfully body. Each night the thing had come down from the passing comet to assuage its hellish hunger, and being otherwise impalpable and powerless, it had used the abbot for its energumen, molding his flesh to the image of some obscene monster from beyond the stars. It had slain a peasant girl in San Zanobi on the night while we waited behind the abbey. But thereafter, the beast was seen no more in Averone, and its murderous deeds were not repeated. In time, the comet passed to other heavens, fading slowly, and the black terror it had wrought became a varying legend, even as all other bygone things. The abbot Theophile was canonized for his strange martyrdom, and they who read this record in future ages will believe it not, saying that no demon or malign spirit could have prevailed thus upon true holiness. Indeed, it were well that none should believe the story, for thin is the veil betwixt man and the godless deep. The skies are haunted by that which it were madness to know, and strange abominations pass evermore between earth and moon and athwart the galaxies. Unnameable things have come to us in alien horror and will come again. And the evil of the stars is not as the evil of Earth. Boom. I love that. Who knows how to end a motherfucking story? It is Clark Ashton Smith. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about Theophile. Hold on. Sorry. Can we talk about the end of the story first? (laughs) Okay. We already talked about that in the previous episode. Uh, a few things about this ending I want to point out. One, mm-hmm. that he, he being uh, Smith, decides on this like last piece of savagery. Like He can't just let the Star Beast have been defeated. Like He has to have murdered a, a peasant girl that same night. Right, like, that's true. It just seems like, yeah. a, like a weird and vicious detail to put in the end of the story. And I like... I, I would pre-draw a connection between these passages at the beginning of this paragraph and what I like about next week's story or next time's story, which is Holiness um, of Azrak, where he talks about how uh, in time the comet passed, other heavens fading slowly and the Black Terror had wrought, became a varying legend even as all other bygone things. I think this line, and there's a certain sense in the story next time that I can talk about more, where... I, I sort of feel Clark Ashton Smith making a um, like reducing the individual actions to meaninglessness just by the sheer movement of history, which I think is kind of mm-hmm. interesting and not not something you normally find in um, 
don't know if you would call this heroic fiction, but it certainly flirts with being heroic fiction. And I don't yeah. think that Luke's partnership with them is really popularly known either. Right. Um, he's not troubled. Like he's given free reign to live and do whatever he wants from now on. But I don't think that he's known for it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now let's talk about Theophile. Okay. So it's really interesting if you take it from now knowing that the Star Beast came down from the comet and took over this monk, this abbot, trailing through the murders. Uh, it starts mm-hmm. out with animals and then moves on to dead people and then to actual humans. So it almost seems as if, I mean, can we assume that Theophile has some kind of agency here within the Star Beast? My thought is that maybe it's working in his brain right that it's because of its shape and because it periodically resembles all these different things either it's resembling something from beyond the stars which is how they take it or my thought is that maybe it's going through a zoological catalog in his brain and so now it's a snake and now it's more like a spider or a beetle and it's pulling in all these little facets of things and so that might explain why he thinks animals do you eat and then I'm not sure why he was switched from animals to people. I'm not sure what's better about people. But I wonder if part of that's the abbot pulling him back and says, if we're going to have to eat people, can it be corpses? Right. That's how I took it, that the that the abbot's trying to stop the creature from killing people. But, I mean, it's a star beast. There's only so long that he can keep it onto animals. And then, like you said, if it has to eat people, why not dead people? But the, the star beast... Doesn't really like that suggestion too. But I think Theophile, at least in the early versions, definitely he knows what's going on, or at least he knows that he's somehow tied up in all of this. Right. I think he can't. I think it, the problem in the earlier versions is because I think he would probably have just killed himself or something to save the people. And the um, fact that the Star Beast killed either his sister or his cousin, whatever, Sister Teresa, is like mm-hmm. a huge slap in the face. Like, no, you're mine. You can't stop right. me from doing this stuff. And then and, Theophile goes to the sorcerer and says, look, I will open every door, find this thing, knowing that he's it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a reasonable hypothesis that he's kind of figured that out by this point and that he's desperate because suicide is, well, it's you know supposed to be a, a sin. And I'm not entirely sure of the specifics on that, but it would be a problem for him to commit it. But for him to ask somebody else to solve this problem is totally allowable. So I think I, I like your your thing as long as you don't think that he's like somehow, I don't think that he's necessarily morally complicit in it. No, But I, I think there's yeah. a part of his subconscious that is tied up with it and I think he be- definitely becomes aware of it. I think just the fact that his sister or good friend or whatever was killed during this uh, mm-hmm. shows that he wasn't because there's no reason for him to to do that. There was nothing in the story that said that she had wronged him or uh i agree (laughs) no what i what i find interesting i mean i um i hadn't really thought until you brought it up about about the issue about that moment in the story where he goes and tries to eat the corpses and then fails and that that it's pointed out the level of rage with which it destroys the human body i think is kind of interesting um and shows some moral uh, impetus on the part of the star beast, um, or possibly theophile, if, depending on how you want to read it. Uh, I, what I find interesting is the, is how uh, our hero of the story, Luke, says explicitly that theophile wasn't aware of what was going on with him. But I think that, I mean, my my opinion is that 
the TFL must have known what was going on, or at least had a very strong suspicion, in particular because of that one passage where he talks about how every door will be open when they get to the Abbey of Paragon, which just seems to me to be an invitation to kill him. You know, like, it just, like, I think in, in hindsight, like, that's really the only way to read, because it read that phrase or that, that particular moment yeah, in the story. Absolutely. Um, so you think he's he's still protecting him? I, I do. Either he's still protecting him or, or he... Yeah, I, I prefer the reading where he's still protecting him. I mean, it's possible he just doesn't get it, but I, I, I think that Luke probably gets it, and I think he's still, for whatever reason, despite it being read in a bygone era, in a bygone era, uh, us reading about a bygone era, he still wants to protect Theophile's reputation for some reason. Maybe he but, recognizes Theophile's virtue that he was willing to sacrifice himself, even though he hadn't done anything wrong, and so he wants that to be rewarded. It's possible. Like, I, I just don't. I don't. I don't know that I can ascribe the proper motivation for for uh, for why Luke could be doing that, given how the story starts. That he is like he's already close to death. Let's assume mm-hmm. that he's much much older, and he's making a point of like hiding this tale so thoroughly i just don't know why he would be continuing to um protect the reputation of a long dead abbot you know i think it's a fascinating question like he, he very well may want to protect theophile's reputation or right. maybe it's maybe it has more to do with the reputation of the, of the abbey itself who knows here's what i've learned if you're living in Averone, uh don't be a monk don't name your kid theophile it'll <laughs> always turn out badly for you <laughs> So what do you, what is your assessment of this story? I, I would, in one of the earlier episodes, I was talking about my three favorite Averon stories. I think, I don't know, like, I think I would still mark this as one of my three favorites. I, I specifically because of this issue of the, um, well, a couple of things, but, but really for me, it really boils down to the very nerdy, it's a fire demon, right. star beast. Like, I just find it as cool as Nathair's, um, Colossus. I like this one and Colossus and, um, maker of gargoyles uh, i think those three are definitely my favorites forever i didn't love no, this i know i was gonna say i know you you have critiques of the story or you don't you, it didn't speak to you as well as as much as it spoke to originally yeah it didn't because i think it was a little it was a little more information rich than the other ones and i i really liked the unabridged the way that the story was structured i feel like the the deaths had a little bit more impact in that one but in the abridged, it was just kind of like, okay, there's a monster on the loose. Okay, it's it's not as cool as the Colossus because it's the stupid snakehead thing. Um, I'm sorry, does he use the adjective stupid in the story? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that does remind me. Um, we didn't talk about how in the first draft, which I have to say, uh, on the whole, I like better too. Yeah. Um, Oh, but the I ending love the, is the different. frame story. Mm-hmm. But the ending is was one of the things he changed, and that's one of the things I really do like about the second yes. the published version. Because in the first one, he essentially does the same thing that he'll later use in Colossus. In this one, he comes up with this esoteric powder. That's yeah, so in the original version, I think. In the original version, there's no fire demon versus no. the star. Well, there's the fire demon, but yeah, he, he just tells him, okay, look, here's a recipe for how you make this old Hyperborean thing that's what they used last time. That was okay. And I thought, uh, Colossus when I read it. And then. When I read the, uh, the the abridged version, I thought, yes, fire demon fight. I think doing it in that order um, is one of the reasons that I like it so much. Yeah, and in, in uh, I mean, I really can't recommend the Nightshade books enough. They're really great. And the version in the Nightshade books basically smashes the two together. So you have the, you have the frame stories, but instead of the powder ending, which is definitely a bit of a, a wet noodle, um, 
it uses the fire demon battle. It's pretty cool, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> um, reading it with you guys helped me appreciate it a lot better than reading it just by myself. Um, I was able to see kind of the, the structure of the Star Beast and how that struggle seemed to be making itself apparent throughout the story. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny. Like, I I vividly reading it for the first time, and I, I didn't actually like the story that much until it got to the ending. And then once that battle happened and once the story ended, I was like, oh, like, in thinking back on it, it kind of, its reputation grew very heavily at the farther I got away from reading it. And then rereading it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this actually is as good as I thought it might be. Yeah. Okay. And that was The Beast of Averone. We're, I'd actually really be interested in hearing what you guys think of it. So comment on our website. Which you can find at thedoubleshadow.com. We'd be especially interested in hearing from those of you who'd read both versions or the Nightshade version, um, what your take is on the variations and what you liked and didn't like about them. Next show, we'll be discussing the holiness of Azedarach. Bravo. C'est bien fait. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everybody. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome to Clark Ashton Smith Radio. I'm Tim. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> theophile, theophile, theophile. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another late night discussion of Clark Ashton Smith. Double your shadow, double your pleasure here at the Clark Ashton Smith Radio <laughs> Podcast.